Christ. This can happen with people with PTSD. You can have a flashback and then you can look at your dog and realise that your dog isn't doing anything different, so the flashback is simply that. You're not there. You are actually with your dog in the supermarket. You're sitting on the couch with your dogs chewing on each other. <laughs> so that could work for any kind of psychosis or mm, mm. Um, hallucinations. Fugue states. Often the dog will bark to bring you back to the present. How will it know what's happening in your head? Oh, because you're, you smell different. Your behaviour is different. And they are the most minutest observers of our behaviour. There isn't anything that we do that they don't know about. That's Kath Phillips. Kath's the founder of a charity called Mind Dog, which helps people with psychiatric assistance dogs. These dogs can be almost any breed, and they belong to all sorts of people too. But the whole Mind Dog thing started more than 20 years ago with Kath and her clever little dog, Buddy. Kath's current dogs are Ridgebacks called Clem and Winston. You just heard them. And she also has a black Manchester terrier, who she sometimes calls Rat Dog, but whose actual name is Spring. And out at Kath's bush property in midwinter, when I recorded this interview, she leaves the door open so the dogs can roam in and out, they can wrestle on the Persian rugs, and climb up and snore on the creaky leather couch. All of which is to say, there will be some of the noise of a dog-filled home in this episode. But you're a dog person, so you'll understand. I'm Michelle Ransom-Hughes. This is Oh My Dog, and the story of Kath, Buddy, and the Mind Dogs. I have had bipolar 2 all my life, but I'd never had a diagnosis until 1996. Anyway, I'd, we'd always had dogs. I'd always had dogs as an adult. I struggled for a long time, and then I realised that I was a lot more comfortable and a lot less stressed when I had my dogs with me. Kath took this thought seriously and she started to look around for other people who felt the same way, able to cope infinitely better with a dog by their side. I came across a website called Barking Mad, which was um, run by a woman who lived on the northern beaches in Sydney and um, she had a mental health disorder and she talked about psychiatric assistance dogs. And I thought, that's a really good idea. That's a great idea. Now, unfortunately, she left. The website fell apart. It wasn't anything. But I searched on Google and I found the Psychiatric Service Dog Association in America, which was established by a woman with bipolar 2 and 3 Ridgebacks, which is what I happened to have at the time. Exactly the same. Exactly the same. They were really just... um, kind of a research organisation, I guess. 
they didn't actually train or, or test dogs themselves, but they had a public access test on their website, which I downloaded. And that is the certification process for assistance dogs. So I tried to find somebody who would test one of my dogs. In Australia, a public access test is the final step in having a dog certified. It officially allows them to be with you at all times. But first, a trainer has to check whether your dog is up to the gig. Whether it sits under the table in cafes, whether it doesn't poo in the wrong place. So you kind of want a good dog. Yes, you want a good dog. All dogs are good, aren't they? Yes, they are. <laughs> they are good unless but... we fuck them up. When she started chasing down this idea of having a psychiatric assistance dog, Kath and her partner Sue were living on Dangar Island. Kath was building their house and working as a visual artist. They had two lovely ridgebacks. That was until the fateful day when Kath was in the Hornsby chainsaw shop. I had my ute parked out the back and Puddle and, and Murphy were in it and the son came in and said, are those your ridgebacks? And yes. Do you want some more? No. Um, oh, well, we've got these two and they're really wonderful and they're beautiful and we can't have them anymore because we're going to have another baby and we just can't have the dogs anymore and they're only six months old and they're just wonderful. And here's my phone number. Oh, God. So I went home and I said to Sue, there's these two dogs and one's a boy and one's a girl and I think we should take the girl. And Sue said, no, we don't need any more dogs. No, 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 no. And anyway, we'll have to take them both. So we took them both and Red was um, a big girl. She was beautiful. And Buddy was a runt. He was smaller than all of our other dogs. But he was really smart. And so because he was smaller... I chose him to be my assistant's dog because he would fit into spaces better and be less threatening to other people. He was small, but Buddy had a big personality. Kathy says he was always the first one, the first to eat the cat's food, the first out of the bed in the morning in case there was a snack somewhere, the first on the couch to watch the telly, the first to get under the blankets at night, the first off the boat and onto the beach. Eventually, Kath found a trainer to conduct Buddy's public access test. It was Marley, a former guide dog trainer from Canada. So we met at North Sydney, and Buddy had never been to North Sydney before. And one of the things was we had to use public transport. And we'd never used public transport before, or except the Dangar Island Ferry, which doesn't really count. Uh, and we went down to the railway station. So he'd never been underground in a big building like that. He'd never been in a lift, but he went in the lift. Uh, he had never been in that kind of noisy, hard surfaces, echoing sounds environment before. And that can be highly stressful for a dog. Anyway, a train came in, never seen a train before, and trains are noisy, and we had to get on it. So I stood in the doorway, I looked at him, he looked at me, we both looked at the train, he looked at me, and we got on. And he was absolutely fine, except I asked him to sit, and he did, but he wouldn't stay sitting because of the movement of the train. 
So that was Buddy. He was a smart boy. How could he have failed that test that day? Oh, he could have um, reacted badly. He could have run away from the train. He could have um, refused to go on the lift. He could have barked at people on the street. He could have barked at another dog on the street, but happily we didn't see one because he did. <laughs> um, and he wasn't, he wasn't the sort of dog that you would normally pick to be an assistance dog, but he worked for me. Buddy became Kath's assistance dog. Anywhere she wanted to be, they could now go together. But just because a dog's wearing the little yellow and blue jacket of an assistance dog, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's fine with being everywhere just yet. Assistance dogs have to do things like get on aeroplanes, get on buses, get on trains, go to Westfield, go to the supermarket. So what you have to do is you have to train them to be comfortable in that environment. And that means teeny tiny steps. Like, if your dog's never been to a supermarket before, trolleys. Trolleys can be big things and really scary things for dogs. So you would take them to the outside of the supermarket and maybe sit on a bench out there and let the dog see the trolleys and check out what's going on. Winnie. Winnie. Good boy. Good boy, come here. Good boy, yes, you are such a good dog. Good boy, you leave her alone. So you do it in teeny tiny increments and you reward the dog all the time. Lots and lots and lots of treats. So it it comes to associate going to the supermarket with lots of treats. Hey, yeah, good times. Exactly what you do with a toddler. Yes, (laughs) not so different, not so different. Kids and dogs, same thing. Having Buddy worked like a charm for Kath. There were times where I was in such a bad state that I couldn't leave the house. And if I wanted to go out somewhere, Sue had to come home from work, get in the boat, come over and get me, and then we would go out. But with Buddy, I could do that. I could do it by myself. Where did you take Buddy? Oh, I used to take Buddy everywhere. Bookshops, supermarket, my psych. So what did he do for you that, and that allowed that to happen? Um, well... Because he was dog reactive and I had to keep an eye on him and I had to be aware of the environment around me because I had to see the other dog before he saw the dog in order to stop him from doing bad things like barking and lunging. That takes you out of your head. And having to focus um, on things in the distance because... uh, What happens to me, and I don't know if this happens to other people, but it probably does, is um, you can't see. I I don't mean that you go blind, but you have such a small focus that um, you you can focus on two metres ahead of you, but you can't focus on anything else. Is this when you're having a bipolar episode? Um, When I'm, when, yes, when you're, well, bipolar twos don't have the big florid, bipolar one episodes but it's when when you're depressed when you yeah it's when you're not functioning very well so when you're unwell. or you miss your meds and so your world's closed down yep. in your own head yep and having the dog forces you to open back out on behalf of the dog yes on behalf of the dog it's really and symbiotic 
Yes, yes, it is. And the dog um, does things for you. Like he would sit on the train, he would sit with his head on my knee all the time. So that is grounding, that's called grounding. He's um, keeping me reassured. Just having his presence there would reduce my anxiety. My dentist once said that it's like a security blanket on, on legs, but not trivialising it like that. And it is, it, it's, your dog makes you feel secure. It, the physical contact um, reduces anxiety as well. The um, feeling of protection that the dog gives you, and I don't mean protection in a guard dog sense, but the feeling of um, having something that's there for you, that's on your side no matter what, which doesn't get rid of your anxiety, but it mitigates it. You wouldn't need to touch him? Yeah, yeah, I would. I would. I'd often have my hand on him, except he was so small that I had to bend down to do it. After making her way through the long process of getting Buddy accredited, people were urging Kath to share what she'd learned with others. So drawing on her experience with Mardi Gras and other community bodies, Kath held a fundraising dinner, she set up a board, and in 2011, launched Mind Dog. Now you might be confused, as I definitely have been, by the many different dogs with jobs. There's therapy dogs, support dogs, service dogs. What's the go? Well, therapy dogs do amazing work in public settings, places like schools, hospitals, courtrooms. But when an assistance dog is in public, they're partnered with just one handler. And to qualify for an assistance dog, that person, the handler, must have a legally defined disability. Since Buddy and all the other mind dogs are psychiatric assistance dogs, I'm curious how the dogs can be trained to alleviate something that's for the most part going on inside a person's mind. Ah, well, that's the thing. They're not. And this is why they have to be taught, um, trained positively and why they have to sleep with their handler and be with their handler as much as possible because of the bond because the dog is so deeply bonded with the handler, the dog recognises the different states of the handler's physiology and recognises the handler's need. Now, our dogs need to be independent thinkers and they need to be able to make choices because if you've got a handler who's, you know, having a meltdown somewhere, like in a supermarket or what have you, the dog has to be able to decide make choices on that handler's behalf so the dog has to say okay we've got a problem here I need to do something I think I'll do this which means usually means I think I will take her out of this situation or I think I will um, bark at her to bring her out of her fugue state or I think I will um, lick her legs really vigorously because I'm a short dog and that's the easiest way for me to do this or if it's a big dog I might jump up at her, put my paws on her or get her out of here and get her somewhere where she can sit down and I can, me being the dog, I can sit on her and that's a thing called deep pressure stimulation where the dog, and big dogs do this as well, sit on top of you. And so feeling pressure on your body can ground you, can bring you out of the state that you're in. And our dogs need to be able to think to do that without being commanded. So what we're doing is we are um, 
capitalizing, if you want, on the dog's natural behaviors. Dogs will leave an area of stress. Its handler is super stressed by being in this area, so the dog leaves and takes the handler with them. You might think this all makes a great deal of sense, but I know there's still a degree of skepticism out there around psychiatric assistance dogs. Like a lot of things to do with mental health, it can be hard to get your head around something that you can't see. And we mostly can't see the job the mind dog is doing. But you know what? You can't see a pacemaker either. There's a convention amongst assistance dog trainers for physical assistance dogs of things called tasks, where the dog is trained to do specific things. And that might be opening doors or putting a card in the ATM or stuff like that. Things which are quite complex tasks. And when we first set up, we were like, oh my God, we've got to have tasks. And so we would ask our handlers, our clients, what the dog does for you. And they would have all sorts of answers, like he blocks me, um, he wakes me from night terrors, all these different things that the dog would actually do for them. And we started to realise they were natural dog behaviours that were organically developed through the relationship with the person. So we don't call them tasks anymore, we call them actions And it's an action that the dog takes in response to a change in the handler's physiology. The law, and the law in Australia is the Disability Discrimination Act, makes no mention of tasks. No mention at all. And it's a convention that has developed that you must have tasks, otherwise it's not a genuine assistance dog. Well, we would say that that these dogs teach themselves organically developed um, mitigating actions. Okay, and that's the definition of an assistance dog, isn't it? Yes, an assistance dog is one which is trained to alleviate the handler's condition, whatever that condition may be. Our clients all have a mental health disorder of some kind. So part of the application form has to be filled out by a medical practitioner and that practitioner has to say that their patient meets the definition of having a disability under the Act. And we don't make any um, judgments on diagnosis. We're not medical health professionals. Venturing into public places means there will be public. Do we all know by now not to interrupt a working dog? I think so. But some people do use their assistance dog as a kind of icebreaker. Some clients seek that kind of social interaction because it's the only way they can do it. And so their often small dog will initiate the social interaction for them and then they start having conversations with people. They like that. Lots of rewards in there because there's pats from the new person, there's good feelings from the handler, yeah. so there's, it's all self-rewarding behaviour. And it's entirely up to you whether you let people come and talk to you about your dog. But for those who find it hard enough to venture out to the shops, who really just want to get their errands done and get home again. What we say if you are that kind of a person and you don't want contact is just put your hand up in a stop motion and turn away. Because a lot of people, a lot of people will just ignore you and want to interact with the dog. And they ignore the vest, they ignore everything, they just want to pat the dog. And we were at 
Mackay Airport once and um, there was a, a supervisor and she came up to say you can't have the dog. She then realised it was an assistance dog and she said, oh, right, and you're not supposed to interact with them, are you? You're not supposed to pat them. And at the whole time she's patting the dog, patting, patting, patting. And that happens so often. There is much, much more public awareness and it's coming from kids because somebody has taken an assistance dog to a school and you'll often hear kids telling their parents in, you know, in a shopping centre somewhere, Mummy, we can't touch that dog, that dog's working. It's an inescapable fact that we usually outlive our dogs. Kath's first assistance dog, Dear Buddy, had been trained using a choke chain by a dishonest trainer when he was still a puppy. It damaged his throat and shortened his life. He died when he was eight and I got him when he was six months. I didn't understand what was happening to him with his throat and his cough. So I wasn't, I wasn't as sensitive to his needs as I should have been. I just thought he was getting lazy. What was he demonstrating? Oh, he had um, laryngeal paralysis, which I didn't know. And that was from the choke chain, which meant that his larynx wasn't opening sufficiently for him to get enough oxygen. And I thought he was getting lazy. And he wasn't. He couldn't breathe. Oh, so he was slowing. Mm. But I would take them out in the boat every day because there were three of them. So, you know, they ran out every day and I would take them out in the boat and drop them on one part of the foreshore and then they'd run through the bush and I'd pick them up on another part of the foreshore and they would just leap onto the bow of the boat and leap off. And he was always the first one off and always the first one back on. Um, And so when he started slowing down, that's when I started to think. Because he he wouldn't get out of the boat after a while and I would make him get out of the boat which you know when I look back I think oh my god how horrendous how could I have done that but uh he um you know we ended up at the expensive vet hospital the super expensive vet hospital and they um stitched one side of his larynx to the one side of his throat so he could breathe again but that of course meant that his larynx couldn't close so he got pneumonia which is what happens and we'd just come here and um I realized one day that he was he wanted he was wanted to die because he went off in the garden and just lay down there in an area where he wouldn't normally do that and so I um picked him up because I had to come up here so I picked him up weighed a bit and we came up here all the all of us all the dogs came up here and I rang the local vet and she came out and she got out of her ute and she had his file in her hand which was like two inches thick and she the first thing she said was well you've really fought for him and um She put him to sleep. And that was Buddy. He was a great dog. He was a fantastic dog in the bush. 
he's got a big pile of rocks over in the chook paddock. In fact, there are four big piles of rocks over in the chook paddock that belong to dogs. Although Carly, my second assistant's dog, is up on top of the hill. Why is that? I didn't want to put her with the others because she was kind of different. One, she wasn't a Ridgeback. She was a Labrador. And because she was a, a bomb detector dog from the federal police and apparently she wasn't that good but apparently she would bond with her handlers and focus on the handler rather than focusing on the job which made her a brilliant assistance dog absolutely brilliant cat's still looking for a new assistance dog it's not easy rat dog here um his name is spring and he's very sweet and he's seriously bonded with me but um He's never going to be my mind dog. I mean, I have taken him out because, you know, I'm supposed to train him. So I've taken him, to, taken him to my site. He's good in lifts. He's good upstairs. The only time he ever showed any stress was when we were on Quarry Street once and it was raining and everybody had umbrellas. Never seen an umbrella before. So he was a little bit, you know, wary of that. But he's very brave and very gutsy. He adores me, but it's not going the other way. So what will become of him Oh, he's just going to live here and be a dog. <laughs> like the other two. Yep. No, Clem, don't do that. You know you're not supposed to do that. Clem wants to be my mind dog. Oh, she's applying for the position. <laughs> yeah, but she's scared of shiny floors and terrified of lifts oh. and stairs because we don't have any stairs. So how many dogs altogether now have you um, brought into the organisation? 1,393. That's incredible. How did you do so many? It's the demand. We haven't... All we have is a website. That's a lot of people who, whose lives are dramatically different. Yes, yes, and they are dramatically different. The difference that we see in people between the first public access test and the second is extraordinary. Just extraordinary. What sort of changes have you seen? They're more confident. They're more relaxed. They go out. They will be cleaner. Their home will be cleaner. Um, they will often have jobs that they didn't have before. They will travel. They will have better relations with the people around them. They just transform. It's genius. And it's simple. Dog people understand right away how this works. There is a Kelpie not far from Sydney. Her handler is a late middle-aged woman. And the woman woke up in the middle of the night with the dog jumping on her chest. And she thought, what do you want? What do you want? Do you, you know, want to go outside? What's the problem? And the dog doesn't appear to want to do anything. This is not something this dog normally does. And the dog does this four times wakes her up from her sleep four times by jumping on her chest. And the fourth time, she realises that her speech is slurred. And she goes... She goes into her husband and says something's wrong. So he calls the ambulance and um, she gets taken off to the hospital and the specialist says, you have had a stroke. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be able to talk. 
you shouldn't be able to walk. What happened? So she told him about her dog jumping on her chest. And he basically said, that dog saved your life. What was happening when it jumped on your chest was you took in a big breath of oxygen, which went to your brain and your brain is a lot healthier than it should be. So normally a stroke would cause you to go unconscious? Yep. Wow. So did she make a recovery? Yes, yes, she's absolutely fine. <laughs> it's not dog dinner time. <laughs> Come on, dogs can go outside. Come on. Come on, dogs. Yes. Not all the support given by assistance dogs is as clear-cut as this, but that a mind dog is so closely bonded to his person that he keeps her from going unconscious. Well, that's a perfect, tangible example of what Kath's known all along. Some of us simply need our dogs to live. Thank you so much, Kath, for sharing your story. And thanks for everything you and the rest of the Mind Dog team do. If you want to find out more about Mind Dog, just go to their website. It's all there for you. And if you go to our website, you'll find links, photos, and a transcript related to this episode and all of our other episodes as well. That's ohmydogpodcast.com. Oh My Dog is created. Written and produced by me, Michelle Ransom-Hughes. Our deluxe sound designer, composer and mixer is the talented Saya Vogel. And in just a second, you'll hear another of Saya's love songs for dogs. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>